Welcome to Lorica, the podcast of Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. St. Patrick's is a parish in the Antiochian Orthodox Christian Archdiocese of North America, serving the Western Rite. Father Patrick is also the administrator of the Orthodox West. Today we're all reminded that we are a bit closer to the end. It's hard to believe we've come round again to the beginning of another liturgical cycle of incarnation and redemption, which actually begins today. Uh, The first Sunday of Advent, which is the beginning of the liturgical year for us, is next Sunday, not today. But if you've been around a while, you know that we always begin a bit before the beginning. Um, There's a kind of a joke in orthodoxy that, uh, you know, orthodox people are always late. I mean, that's the Byzantines, not the Western Rite. In in the Western Rite, so please, don't aspire to that. Um, We stay late, (laughs) but it doesn't mean that we're supposed to arrive late. Um, Actually, to be really a good orthodox Christian, To be on time means to be early. Today is not just the last Sunday after Pentecost. That's what it's called. You know every Mass has a name, a little moniker. And today is not just one of the Sundays after Pentecost. It has a special name. It's like a double name. It's it's the last Sunday after Pentecost, but it's also called the Sunday next before Advent. And, you know, the the number of Sundays after Pentecost, because... The date of Easter changes, therefore the date of Pentecost changes, therefore um, the, the number of Sundays can change. I can't remember, I think it's between 22 and 28 Sundays can fluctuate anywhere between there. But it doesn't matter which it lands on. If it's the 22nd or the 26th Sunday after Pentecost, this Mass is always the 24th Sunday after Pentecost Mass. That is always the last Sunday after Pentecost, Sunday next before Advent, because of the readings, because of the propers, all of the readings and propers for this Mass, which always precedes next Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent, are of an Advent theme. So Advent really begins today, (laughs) sort of, kind of. I mean, this is it. We're, We're leaping into Advent in a way today. Yes, next week's the first Sunday of Advent, but the themes begin today. You know, when the Byzantines say, let us conclude our prayer to the Lord, then they go on for another 40 or 50 minutes. We kind of do that in reverse. So we say next Sunday's Advent, but really today, we enter in. We enter in on Advent themes. We prepare our hearts. It's kind of like a pre-Advent little mini week. The point is, to all of that, it's time to get ready. (laughs) So get ready. This is it. Today's the call. Today's the call, get ready. And that's the point of Advent, but also my point to us today. Because we, as a family, here in this community, we are about to embark, we are embarking, as of today, on a journey, a quest, a work, a campaign. We are on an operation. 
which is going to require something of us. It is an intensified effort, an engagement of our faith. And if we participate energetically and willingly, there will be a great reward. We have no shame in announcing that. There will be a reward. Christ promises us a reward. You know, we've been strolling through the bucolic pastoral valleys these past six months of these Sundays after Pentecost and our, you know, lovely weather and summer and spring. Uh, but now things are going to shift. Now we're heading into the dead of winter. We're headed into a climb up the mountain. So it's time to gird your loins. You know, we have a date actually on the calendar. We know how long this takes. We know exactly how long it takes, in fact, this mountain climb. We get to return to the valley um, on June 12th uh, in 2022. It's about six and a half months. Actually, I counted the days. It is exactly 172 days. So we have 172 days in front of us where we've got to gird our loins and trudge up the mountain and show great courage. Now, there's a few... Uh, rest stops that have been planned along the way. We get a few weeks after Epiphany. There's a few rest stops along the way. And the best banquet parties of the year take place during this time, too. Okay, so the best parties are during this next six and a half months. But also the most arduous stretches of the campaign with serious food rations. So, get ready. No lollygagging. No falling behind, right? We have to all go together through this as a family. And Jesus warns us this morning, we start with this apocalyptic passage from the gospel, which we will repeat again next week, just for good measure. Jesus warns us that there's a great tribulation coming. Now, whether he is speaking in this passage about something that has already happened or something that's yet to happen, I personally think it's probably a combination of both. There will be, regardless, tribulations unto the end. He has promised us, in this world, you will have tribulation. <laughs> Why? Why in the world would he make such a promise? Why would he do this to us? I mean, he's God. And he's good. <laughs> and he wants us to be happy. Despite the people who are counteracting, you know, the popular therapeutic deism saying... That's not what God wants. That actually is what God wants. He actually does want you to be happy. <laughs> that is precisely what he wants. That's why you exist. That's why he made you. He made you to be happy, essentially. He made you for the express purpose of being filled with delight and joy of his divine life. That's why he made you. So why doesn't he just fix it all with a wave of his hand? Why, why have to go through all this trouble this tribulation. I mean, supposedly he could. He has the power to do it. Well, apparently, this is a profound answer, by the way, if you listen up. <laughs> he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Apparently, it would not be what is best for us, or else he would. That's it. You know, a lot of people have gone to their perdition because they didn't understand that answer. Apparently, it is not what would be best for us to just fix it, or else he would. You know, sometimes your mother says, 
I need you to do such and such. And you say, why? And she says, just do what I told you. You know, many times God says that to us. I am not your mother, and I am certainly not God, but I am in your priest. I will try to explain to you over the time why we have switched to laws. In the meantime, for those of you who are wrestling with this, and that's fine, I wrestled with it too for years. I'm asking you, as your priest, to just learn to like it, okay? And you can, and you will, or else you're going to be miserable. And I don't want you to be miserable. That would, and you'll make me miserable, and I especially don't want to be miserable myself. <laughs> I promise you, I promise you it is better. I promise you. If you don't understand that now, it's okay. If you will humble yourself and learn to love it, you will find out you've been... Oh, this is going to offend somebody, but I'm going to say it anyway. I don't mean it offensively. You've been drinking two buck chuck, but we're giving you Chateauneuf du Pop, okay? And if you, you just have to trust me. I'm asking you to trust me. Yes, I'm pulling that card. I know that's unfair, but I'm asking unabashedly, unashamedly, you know me, those of you that know me, I am asking you to trust me. That was a little aside. I mean, it's not really an aside because that's essentially what this entire life consists of in our relationship to God. And God reinforces that in other areas of our life as well, again and again and again. So not only is there tribulation, which Christ is talking to us in this passage today in our gospel, there's not only tribulations brought on us by outside forces, you know, this enemy that's not us, the enemy that's out there, a real personal enemy, and it seems as if God, and he could, could easily squash this enemy on our behalf. But as Christians, as Christians, we actually engage in war games. We set up for ourselves military maneuvers in which we engage in, and we bring upon ourselves, we actually invite and create self-imposed tribulation, as if there wasn't enough in the world <laughs> from our outside enemy, we create our own tribulations. You realize we, we're getting ready to do that next Sunday. That's the whole point. We're getting ready to deny ourselves and buffet our bodies. So there's not enough tribulation for us from the enemy. We have to create our own. Two basic reasons come to mind for why we do this. First, it prepares us to face the outside enemy. You know, it makes us alert. Like I said, it's kind of like a war game, a maneuver. Helps us to learn discernment, trims the fat, strengthens the sinews, sharpens our response time, clears the head, so we're ready for the real battle. That's one reason. The second reason is, is that the enemy is not only on the outside, but also on the inside, unfortunately. And that other enemy is our own sinful appetites and passions, which must be overcome through tribulation. In this case, it is self-imposed tribulation. So, you can make fun of it if you want. If you're going to understand the apostolic faith of 2,000 years, you have to understand it's time to get out the hair shirt. Okay? Or, if it, or it's equivalent. We've all made fun of hair shirts. Whether you wear a hair shirt or not, that is exactly what we are getting ready to do, is put on our, you know, metaphorical hair shirt. Precisely what we are about to do. 
In tribulation, and in this passage in the gospel, Jesus tells us, and this applies to all tribulation, he tells us not to go back to the house and grab our things, but to flee immediately. He's trying to tell us that when we're in tribulation, which is a state of being in this world, whether the tribulation is from without or within, um, we are to practice detachment, the spiritual discipline of detachment and apatheia. We are to have one true love, and we are cling to one thing, and that is the kingdom of God. Jesus is not here teaching us a moral lesson. He's not saying this is the moral thing to do, or this is really the best thing to do. He is warning us, as a loving father and elder brother, of a metaphysical reality, that if we cling to things that are going to burn and be destroyed, what's going to happen to us? These things are going to be destroyed. If we enmesh ourselves with something that's going to be destroyed, we are in danger of suffering the same fate. Another version of this is trash in, trash out. You are what you eat. It's sort of the same thing. We have to be thoughtful about what we put in. And I'm not just talking about food. There will be tribulation. He says, heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. And it is imperative that we prepare for it, that we have our lamps trimmed, filled with oil, and our hearts set right, that we make sure that if our hearts have become dull, if they have become lukewarm, that we recover our first love. All of these themes are themes of Advent. Returning to a moment, for a moment, to that question I posed earlier about why he who has the power does not simply fix everything with a wave of his hand. I said apparently it was not what was best or else, or else he would. I want to elaborate a little bit on that. And I want to turn back to the prophet Job, who I brought up last week as well. Job's been on my mind lately. I think the story of Job encapsulates the deep and mysterious answer to this question. And certainly Job is a Christ figure and points to Christ. He is Christ. He is also the faithful Christian. And his story really addresses this conundrum that we have of God's power and suffering in this world. We know that Job was a righteous and perfect man who God allowed, even it says empowered, Satan gave him permission to torment Job with immense loss and suffering. And I think all of us, anyone who approaches this story maybe in the wrong way or in a short-sighted way, missing the forest for the trees, so to speak, would have a moral problem with this. But we need not camp there. We need to step back and see what this story is really all about. Because that's not really, you know, the author's not getting caught up in that moral problem. If we get caught up, sometimes we get caught up in things and we miss the entire point. In fact, more often than not, we probably do that. So Job's three friends, you remember, they're repeatedly moralizing. They're the ones moralizing. In fact, the whole approach to Job to moralize this whole thing is, is, is epitomized by the three, you know, dingbat friends he has. Uh, they're constantly moralizing with Job and accusing him of wrong. Oh, you're impure. You've sinned. You're wrong. Otherwise, you wouldn't be suffering like this kind of creating this simplistic moral equivalency 
tit for tat, divine justice. This is how divine justice works, and you have obviously violated the law of God. Job, of course, defends himself repeatedly and vehemently while crying out to God in his pain. At the end of the story, though, at the end of the story, God finally comes to Job after everybody's done giving their speeches. God shows up, comes to Job in a whirlwind, and he speaks. Chapter 38, it begins. He begins to speak, and God begins in the most, probably one of the most amazing pieces of poetry in all of the Hebrew scripture. And there's some shocking, shocking things in there. Very, I mean, the writer of this is very bold in some of the things that he does as he attempts to address this real problem of Satan and suffering and goodness of God and righteous people suffering under the divine justice of God. So God lays out, through poetic description, a just... Uh, uh, imagery of the cosmos that he created. Look at this world that I created. The mists on the ocean are the swaddling bands from the womb. I mean, this amazing, beautiful imagery. And it's all about the power of God and the weakness of man. Like, who does man think that he is? Has he determined the birth of the gazelle? Has he determined, you know, the rotation of the planets? God has shut the sea with double doors. He set its boundaries. All of this, the power of God at work in creation. And who is Job? As good and as perfect as he might be, who is Job to contend with these things? At the end of God's three or four par- uh, chapter presentation, which is remarkable, Job is undone at that point. Job is undone. He had rightly, rightly defended himself to his loser friends in the presence of God. But at this point, when God shows up, Job is undone. He says, I put my hand on my mouth. I can speak no more. Job says, I recant. I recant. I despise myself and I recant in the face of God. And he repents in dust and ashes. In all of this, God's verdict is that Job was righteous and that his defense was warranted in the face of his accusing friends. And yet, and yet in the presence of God, Job sees himself as unclean and in need of repentance. All this is true, all at the same time. The entire point of the whole story, that this is all true, all at the same time. God actually chides Job through this poetic admonishment, but he chides him as a loving father. He chides his good and imperfect child in love. But when God comes to the three windbags, you know, his friends, he harshly rebukes them. For their simplistic pat answers and their repeated lies as they try and unpack the mystery of suffering and the system of divine justice. So much so that God instructs Job to go offer sacrifice and pray for them or else they will not be forgiven for their great offense. 
When God finally speaks, when God finally speaks to Job out of the whirlwind, he does through a lengthy poetic imagery of creation. And as he does this, he's unfolding a very complex and mysterious structure of reality in the fallen world. In which nature and kindness are mixed with cruelty and abandonment. He gives a picture, an inexplicable picture, of beauty and fierce violence somehow intertwined. I want to give you quickly three examples. There are numerous examples in God's poem of the beasts which nurture and care for their young. Again, this is a picture of God because he's saying this is what I created. This is my world as I created it. And we see the beasts caring for their young and we get a warm feeling of nurture and love. We think of God's love for us. And then God tells us this strange story about an ostrich who doesn't fit the mold. The ostrich, he says, leaves her eggs in the dust and forgets about them. Just walks off, he says, and lets them be crushed by beasts roaming around in the field who are going to stomp on them. He says, she abandons her young to the stranger. In vain is her labor, he says. And she does it all without fear. Eh, I'll just lay some more. Who cares? Then he says, this is the part that's confusing. He say, oh, well, the ostrich must be bad. But then he says, God made her forgetful of wisdom. God made her forgetful of wisdom. And he did not allot her insight, but... She still rides on high and scoffs at the horse with his rider. Here's this, you know, carefree ostrich who abandons her young riding on the heights of the earth, looking down at the pitiful horse and his rider. What do you do with that? It's the whole point. Not sure. You know, this doesn't fit the loving, kind picture of God and creation. But it does introduce to us another aspect of the structure of reality in this fallen world, which certainly can and should make us feel uncomfortable. The second example is the eagle, which God has created as a great bird of power and prey. He says here about the eagle, Does the hawk soar by your wisdom? He's speaking to Job. Spread its wings to fly away south. By your word does the eagle mount and set his nest on high. On the crag he dwells and beds down. On the crest of the crag his stronghold. From there he seeks out food. From afar his eyes look down. He asked Job, did you set all this up? No, I did. I, the Lord, created the eagle. Where the crest of the crag is his stronghold, then he ends with this line. This is the last line of the chapter, which is important. His chicks lap up blood. Where the slain are, there he is. Now, that's important. That's the last word of this chapter. That's the summation of this great eagle that God has created. This poem, this 
that God is completely unsentimental about creation here. Utterly unsentimental. He is reflecting the structure of reality in this world. The creatures of the wild care for and nurture their young, except for that nasty ostrich. And yet, in this case, it involves violence and death and bloody scraps that are, that are, that are brought to feed the young. That is totally what he is trying to get at here. The parents of these chicks bring them bits of flesh. Within creation, God speaks of all these things. There is no simple, tidy, simplistic moral equation going on here. One last example, and then I'll close, and this is the most radical of all of them. The last example is God's description of, he begins, this is right after the behemoth, which is a hippopotamus, um, but turns into a mythic creature in the poem. But then he begins after the behemoth, he begins with Leviathan, which begins as a description of an Egyptian crocodile in the Nile, tied in with their pagan mythic, you know, religious deities, which are demonic, of course. But he's presenting this character as something he has created. We get right from the beginning. We already have this sort of confusion and problem. So it begins with this crocodile, but it morphs into Leviathan. He actually calls it Leviathan. And the description of Leviathan turns into this fire-breathing dragon. Literally, he's breathing fire. I mean, it's the whole, it's the works. It's right out of, you know... Um, right out of our modern fantasy novels. So he ends with Leviathan, and he gives, God gives this extraordinary description of Leviathan. He is a great and fierce and powerful creature that God has created. He is terrible and wonderful, and shockingly, he is, this Leviathan, a primary character in Canaanite paganism and of their false gods. He's a demon god of the pagans, being described to Job by God as an example of his power. (laughs) How do you question me and my ways and my justice? He says, look at Leviathan. That's the answer he gives in Job. And then in the middle of this description of a creature, which is, quite frankly, the very heart of terror, God as something beautiful. It's a long, long, long list of imagery of the terror of this creature. And then he says, and his eyes are like the eyelids of dawn. And his eyes are like the eyelids of dawn. This is a repraisal of another verse that early on in Job, coming out of the mouth of Job himself. God uses this to describe this terrible creature. And it's meant to be a beautiful phrase. When he says his eyes are like the eyelids of dawn, it's meant to be, this is a strangely beautiful creature which is the terror of darkness all at the same time. So what am I getting at? What's Job getting at? What's this Christian life? What's this all mean? Well, it means essentially that the most beautiful thing in this world The most beautiful thing in this world is a terrifying and ugly instrument of Satan to destroy and kill and inflict suffering.
But God, who is so good and so loving and so powerful, has and could not help but transform what Satan meant for evil to the most beautiful object this world has ever known or ever will know. And that object is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The belly of hell is the belly of Leviathan. And Christ entered. It was made. This terrible, awful thing was made to receive the Savior so that we could be saved. This ugly cross we cling to, we kiss, we love, we hold it up, we glory in this cross. That's the essence of our faith. That also means that God will transform every bit of suffering and every bit of tribulation in your life. And you can go into the fiery furnace not with terror and dread. You can go in like the three youths. You can go in blessing the Lord God. You can go in triumphant and courageous to the fiery furnace. And every bit of it becomes an opportunity for our salvation and for our joy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You have been listening to Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. This has been a production of the Orthodox West.